listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Sometimes we're reminded that among the most difficult things we can do in life is watch someone we know and love go through their own disaster. You know, when, when we're watching someone that is part of us ache, we're watching someone that is part of us, uh, you know, lose a battle that they're, you know, that they're facing. It's just very, very difficult, and there's a tendency in each of us to want to either help out or avoid or some combination thereof. And uh, I was talking with a, a friend of mine recently about this organization, Infinite Smile, and uh, I was asking him, I said, well, what do you think it is that people... You know, what is, it, what is it that people want out of this organization? And, and he was like, I said very eloquently and uh, wisely, he said, oh, I think people just want to feel peace. And this is especially true when we find that somebody's going through something. Or even better, when we find that we ourselves are going through something. What do we really want? Peace. You can try this experiment with uh, someone that you're close with. I wouldn't do it, you know, just at a cafe because you'll look like an idiot. But uh, just kind of ask somebody. So if you could have anything in the world, money is no object, what would it be? And it depends on developmental orientation, age, gender, all sorts of things. But oftentimes you'll run into, uh, I'll pick an 18-year-old male. And an 18-year-old male oftentimes we'll say something along the lines of a Bugatti. I'd like a Bugatti, uh, 12-cylinder, and, uh, you know, 0 to 204 miles an hour in two and a half seconds. That's what I want. Then you you ask, okay, and then what would that bring you? (laughs) Um, I would feel awesome. Okay, so you'd feel good. You'd feel good about it, all right? You keep plumbing just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And what will you invariably find that this brings that person? It brings them, or what they believe it will bring them, is a sense of peace. I know several of my friends who drive really beautiful, amazing cars, and very few beautiful, amazing cars bring peace. They bring stress because someone might ding it, someone might, you know, there's something that's going wrong with it, or... Um, doesn't mean I myself am kind of a car junkie, okay, truth be told. But still, it's, it's, it's very interesting that the things that we get tend not to bring us peace. And it sounds so cliche, but the things that we give tend to bring us the greatest satisfaction, the greatest peace. How is it that we can become uh, more in touch with that? That gift. Well, it's leading a life that's quite purposeful. 
a life that's very, very uh, aware. Uh, there's a quote that I bumped into that I thought was so, so cool. Um, is that a... I'm reading it out of Stephen Batchelor's book, Buddhism Without Beliefs, A Contemporary Guide to Awakening, that I just love. Uh, he really takes all the cultural trappings out. It was very, very instrumental in my own um, uh, path, reading this book, uh, when I read it. But uh, So if you're interested, by all means, I'm definitely plugging his book here. But uh, he says, this is a quote from the Buddha, and further... A monk knows when he is going, I am going. He knows when he is standing, I am standing. He knows when he is sitting, I am sitting. He knows when he is lying down, I am lying down. What is the Buddha saying here in this? He's basically saying, I know what's going on. I am aware. There is clarity in this experience. I'm not avoiding anything. I am not going after anything. I'm just very aware. And in this awareness, there is a steadiness, there's a balance that spontaneously begins to unfold. When we are aware that we are out of balance, guess what? We've just righted ourselves into a place of balance. When we are aware that we are in balance, it's as if a feedback loop of positivity begins to generate through us. We become the answer to prayer without having to do anything. And this is when we are hyper aware of what's going on. When we're not running away. When we're meeting whatever it is fully and completely. And that can be really, really petrifying because we oftentimes have spent lifetimes trying to make sure that uh, we don't have to face things that we don't want to face and that we can go after things that will help us to keep from facing the things that we don't want to face. I use the term sometimes radical honesty as a way of helping us kind of uh, sync with what's true. And in doing that, a certain spontaneous fearlessness kind of comes up. We become so purposeful and yet open to stuff all at once. I was at uh, uh, the health club today, and I was swimming, and I forgot my goggles, okay? And so uh, I had to, had to keep my eyes closed as I was swimming, and... Um, for any of you who, who do swim laps or have done any um, <laughs> uh, open water swimming, you know that oftentimes you just got to close your eyes and you got to just trust that what, whatever's going to be there is going to be there and so forth. And so this is kind of what I was doing. I, I know how many strokes it takes me to get down. I know off the turn as long as I can kind of keep straight. So I had to just do this very, very, you know, um, mindful uh, uh, set of uh, laps. And it reminded me very much, forgive if I've told this story before, but um, uh, I've done a fair amount of open water swimming, which is just about the most thrilling thing you can do, especially in the bay, because of the temperature and because of the animals that are out there. Um, some of them have very large mouths with very sharp teeth, and they're always hungry. 
And uh, it's one of those things you always prepare for, especially when you're out actually in the middle of the bay or you're by the bridge. So I'm doing this, this race that's going, we're going underneath the uh, Golden Gate Bridge uh, to Fort Baker. So, you know, we're all just trucking into the water and it is freezing cold and we jump in and the, the first 200 yards are the most important, uh, uh, that's the most important part of an open water swim because you need to clear out from the, you know, melee of all those people. So you just sprint for those first 200 yards. And I can recall getting about halfway, halfway, uh, halfway through and I'm looking up at this giant lane line called the Golden Gate Bridge above my head and I'm just thinking, my God, this is just a moment. This is the most, the coolest thing. I, I feel so glad to be here. And at that moment, I got bumped on my underside by something very large. And typically, or so I've heard, the great whites like to nudge before they chew. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and I'm, Alex, is this true? Is this kind of how, he's our resident uh, great uh, white shark um, uh, expert since he surfs uh, out there but uh, anyway so I get hit and I'm going this is going to sting a great deal whatever happens next is really going to suck but what, what can I do well I'm going to I'm going to give a, a fight but I'm also I'm overmatched most likely and I started to in, instead of panic I started to just it was as if I kind of dissolved into the water it was the craziest thing I, I don't know how to really put words to it but it was it was a deeply spiritual moment <laughs> obviously so anyway I'm there I'm kind of like <sighs> okay and then I get hit on the other side and I'm figuring okay now this is going I'm going to lose my like lower half or something I'm going to become a plasma fountain in the middle of the bay and people are just going to you know be pointing and look at that guy what happens is I'm sitting there for what must have only been three or four seconds. It seemed like an eternity. Everything is in slow motion. And then right in front of my face, bloop, a seal <laughs> just looks at me as if to say, I wanted to play, you know. But there wasn't anywhere to go. I had to face that moment fully. So I slugged the seal in the face as hard as I could. I'm teasing. I'm totally teasing. <laughs> Buddhist in me. Ah, thank you, seal. Yeah. But the, the reason why I bring this up is that um, it forced that recognition that we can't control everything. If we are truly living... Uh, close to our heart's deepest longing, doing the things that we love to do, we are inherently, hopefully, at risk. We're not playing it safe. We are playing for keeps. We are, if you will, to stretch the uh, metaphor and use kind of a silly cliche, we are living on that edge. The gift is the view from there is spectacular. The drawback is sometimes we slip. Sometimes those near us slip. And the hardest thing to do is to watch self or other in that space of slipping. And yet, isn't that what makes this whole thing so tasty? So, finding peace while at the same time making sure that we're playing for keeps, that we're not playing necessarily, playing safe but we're playing consciously. That's kind of the move. That's where we're going. 
It's also about not risking or doing something that we know doesn't correspond with truth. It means that we purposefully and mindfully disdain running into a situation that we know will at least give us a quick fix, but ultimately won't help us become more conscious at all. It perpetuates the unconsciousness we've always known. Put real simply, it's about meeting every experience without hanging on to preserve anything or pushing something away to avoid anything. It's being right in that middle space, balanced. And in that radical honesty, fearlessness reigns. We're no longer running from anything. We are fully here for each other as our biggest, most profound self. So when we sit tonight, be that. Fully relaxed in the face of whatever comes up. No matter what, just relax. Pay very close attention to what's happening. Oh, there are thoughts. Hmm. Oh, there's emotion. Hmm. Be right there with it. Don't have to do anything. Just have to be. Practice that enough, it becomes your center of gravity, psychologically and spiritually. And as that becomes your center of gravity, suddenly there's a grace and an ease that begins, that begins to permeate your life and the lives that you touch. At least that's what the teaching says. So being at peace for the 18-year-old boy in each of us, it might be the fast car. For the teenage girl, it might be a boyfriend or girlfriend love. Uh, for the 47-year-old male, it might be more youth. For the middle-aged female, it might be more youth. <laughs> For the uh, older female or male, it might be less pain in the knee and back. Whatever, I mean, we're in a, a place as practitioners on a spiritual path where we come to this point where we begin exploring life's deeper questions from a place of something's not quite right. And we tend to avoid the something's not quite right. Uh, I would propose that the something that's not quite right is actually the invitation. And the fact that you even took that step is huge. It's huge. Um, means you're more than halfway there. That's a lie, but still, it sounds good. Um, there's no way of knowing. <laughs> but
but you are being honest. And that's, the, that's kind of the key. That's the, uh, that's the entree, is this idea. It's kind of been a sub-theme over many of the talks over the last several, uh, several weeks, but this idea of radical honesty that I yammer on about so much. This idea that um, when we lead a life that lacks honesty, we are typically running all the time. We are not dealing with things as they are. We are dealing with things that uh, we wish could be. And when we are in a space where we are desiring something that is different than what is, we're not really seeing what is for all that it offers. This moment, as you progress along the spiritual path more and more deeply, you start seeing that this moment is giving you everything that you need. Everything that you could possibly need. It's all already here. But when we have mind jump into the mix and start to evaluate, categorize, compartmentalize, critique, you know, it starts judging what's missing. And in the judging of what's missing, we tend to get into that deeply egoic space of half empty. Well, that's half empty. It's not enough. So if it's not enough, the whole self-system, if it perceives or identifies with a not-enoughness, the natural tendency is for it to grasp things to complete it. That grasp right there is the source of human suffering. I'm going to describe the same disease moving in the other direction now. When we're in a position where we are not radically honest with the way things are, we don't see things the way they are, we don't see them as a complete fullness, we see them as too much. Instead of half empty or full, we see it as overflowing negatively. It's unmanageable, can't deal. When we're in that space, our tendency is to avoid. We go in the other direction. We push away. Right there is the sum total of human suffering. The pushing away or the grasping. Those two moves take us perpetually out of balance. We're no longer, uh, sometimes I use the term, grounded. Being really authentically grounded is when desire has given way to a real visceral recognition of fulfillment. Avoidance falls away when there is a visceral recognition of fulfillment, as it is. Now, it's easy for me to say this. It's probably easy for you to look at this intellectually and go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But nearly impossible to kind of, you know, well, so how the hell do we do this? How does this happen to us, how do we get to a space where this centering, this groundedness kind of shows up? Um, the shortcut is, is meditation. The, uh, and meditation can show up in a lot of different ways. On our cushion in kind of a formal sense or in our chair where we're just really kind of paying attention to what exactly is going on. That tends to strengthen 
muscles that we don't use normally. And the muscles, so to speak, that are strengthened are precisely the muscles that help that inner spaciousness open. I, I oftentimes have this this uh, this memory as a little kid. There was this cartoon on the banana splits. Do you guys remember the banana splits at all? Okay, so I'm dating myself here. If you don't remember it, it's an American thing. Um, and on this on this silly you know Saturday morning car- you know series of cartoons and sketch comedy and slapstick and general idiocy, there was this show. It was uh, the uh, Arabian Nights, and they would always have the Arabian Nights adventure and so forth. And there was this this scene where the guy would say, you know, open sesame, and there was this opening of this this uh, um, it's like a, I remember the you know kind of like opening up to this cave. And that's exactly what we're doing when we sit still, when we incorporate a stillness practice. We are essentially opening up something that typically we have spent years fortifying. Open sesame becomes this, you know, it becomes this availability that we consciously move into when we sit still. If it's not on our cushion or in our chair... Can you do it during your day? Anytime you can do anything that's completely and fully present, where you are fully aware, it might be exercise. Um, It might be uh, playing with kids or grandkids. It might be sitting in a meeting. And I don't mean sitting in a meeting and just going, you know, to your happy place inside and going, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, while they're talking about things you can't stand. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying where you're really right there with what's going on. Therapists know what I'm talking about. You cannot be in that situation with another being, you know, and, you know, kind of be checked out. Or if you are, um, you're probably not the world's greatest therapist. You guys remember, in, was it something about Mary? where the guy's talking and his therapist has left and the guy's talking and then the therapist comes back when the, when the session's almost over. You know, I mean, what kind of good is that? To, well, maybe the person's, you know, just talking out loud and so forth and so that's helpful. But really, it's can we be present? Can we be present? That also leads us into this space of radical honesty. And this radical honesty leads us past the impulse towards desire, past the impulse uh, to avoid. It gets us to play spontaneously and purposefully with what actually is going on. And I use that word play very consciously because this, as much as it feels like torture a lot of the time, there's some tremendous joy to be had. So, it should say, excuse me, radical honesty leads us to surrender, leads us to peace, openness, and peace always, invariably, leads us to fearlessness. And when we are fearless, we are at that point open to love, an authentic, deep love. Not the kind of love we use as a drug 
that we jones for, oh, if only I had some acceptance, but instead, love that transcends self and other, love that actually goes way past our definition of love. It becomes wordless, although poets can sometimes get close, especially Rumi. All right? To look at it in, in another way, dishonesty. Dishonesty leads us to identification. When we're not being really honest with what is, we don't see the fullness of what is. And when we don't see the fullness of what is, we usually grasp or avoid in order to stabilize the inherent chaos of the situation, whatever it might be. So dishonesty leads us to think and strategize and create an identity. And in creating that identity, we then automatically become defensive. Because we feel threatened. If you've identified with something, it's something you have to own, and therefore you must fight for it, right? Sounds like cable news, right? We've identified, this is the position, this is where I stand, this is me, 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 me go, ego, I, me, mine, this, now, damn it, <laughs> right? And when we are in that position where we are defensive, where we've created an identification and we become defensive, okay, we feel threatened, we are now the opposite of peace. We're at war and we're perpetually afraid. There's perpetual fear. And in that realm of fear, like we discussed last week, we are in a space where there is no room for love. Love is fearless. Fear is loveless. That's what happens. And so, our way around this is to uncover the still space. The first quote I gave by the, by the Buddha, it's recognizing when you are playing with your kids, play with your kids. <coughs> when you're holding your beloved, hold them fully. When you're studying for your math final, study fully. When you're kissing someone goodbye, kiss them like you'd never see them again. Play for keeps. And in doing so, this radical honesty begins to unfold. It's very natural because it is our natural state. It's not something we have to work for. It's something that works us if we get out of its way. And the cool thing about this is that no matter what we're facing, no matter what we are facing, the opportunity to get out of our way or to see, in other words, with radically honest eyes what actually is going on, we can see how anything can help support this evolution in us. Anything. Beauty, pain, love, disdain, tragedy, bliss, all of these things are things that we become open to, okay, rather than states that we grasp or avoid. 
we become conduits to life, utterly connected, interconnected, as part of this great web of being. And nothing can really alter that if we have the presence of, uh, of, of this, or rather if there's a practice that supports this presence as we meet our lives, no matter what comes up. No matter how negative the situation, it is a gift offering us a red carpet home. No matter how gorgeous, it's a red carpet offering us just a, a through line, straight home. We just have to be willing to take it. We have to be willing to take that, take that step. We have to be willing to walk that path. Forgive me if I sounded a little bit too spiritually rah-rah there tonight, but uh, um, sometimes it's sometimes it's helpful to. I forget who used this phrase. It bugs me, but I'm going to use it right now. The fierce urgency of now. Every one of us here, every one of us here, is most likely going to die sooner than we want. We have a limited number of days, hours, minutes. How are we going to play? You know, um, it becomes, I think, one of the ways that we can tighten up our practice a little bit once we practice with that, you know, behind us and in front of us. That uh, you know, death awaits. How are we going to live? So, <laughs> I hope you don't walk out of here feeling like all bummed out. I'm going to die. <laughs> That guy's a jackass. <laughs> death, death, death. <laughs> Any questions? Yeah, I Tess. Would, I would like to respond, and I'm very impressed you remembered my name. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure I will depress you if you give me enough time. So... I would like to respond to what you just said about uh-huh. that is coming sooner than we want. Uh-huh. Um, I lost someone last year. Uh-huh. And somebody told me in between then and now that you didn't love that person because of their physical being. You loved them for their spirit. Uh-huh. And so the love goes on. Uh-huh. And I've come to realize that it, nothing really ends. Um, when you die, your body dies, but your spirit goes on. All right. So I just wanted to respond to that. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, yeah, it totally corresponds with uh, pretty much everything that I said there. Even if you get bitten in half by a shark, right? right. You still go, <laughs> the love goes on. Yes. Yeah, the front part goes on. The front part, yes. <laughs> but it's, it's so true. It's, it's what, what, we, what we begin to see when we sit still is we begin to see that there is this space between our thoughts yeah there's this space between the arising of emotions or physical sensations there's a spaciousness that's between all of that stuff that despite the fact we refer to it as an space or emptiness it's totally full mm-hmm. and we have a we have a felt sense of that fullness in that emptiness we don't have words and yet there's this knowing that, my goodness gracious, 
there is a resonance there that is somehow mysterious and so powerful. And there are individuals in our lives that remind us of that constantly, whether they are here or not. Yeah. And if we're good, and the more we sit, the more we realize that that resonance can be felt from everybody and for everybody. That doesn't take away the special kind of resonance we have with certain people. There's a different energetic, I sometimes refer to it as a valence, a different energetic valence for different people and so forth, but that there's this through line, this hum, this shimmer that's there for all beings and for us and for all beings. It's, it feeds on itself in a really, really generous way. And when we let that energetic componentry begin to... Uh, um, support our decision making when our decision making in other words is sourced from that shimmer we are always engaging in generosity we are always giving the appropriate response for whatever arises that's radical honesty in action thank you <laughs> yeah I'm not sure if I can praise this Exactly, but with your story So you're, if you're sitting with your negativity, right? Because right? um, this happened to me the other day, and I was kind of looking at it, trying to figure out whether I had brought a refined ego in to mm-hmm. sort my negativity and mm-hmm. make it positive, or whether it had become positive. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so, so did ego? Situation. I just changed my thoughts, and I wasn't consciously manipulating them, but they kind of changed. The thoughts themselves evolved in relationship to the negativity that initially arose, and suddenly the negativity was no longer negativity. It was just... It what? was from glass half empty to glass full. Mm-hmm. It just switched. But I didn't know if it was mind coming in to do that, or whether it was like I had surrendered. So how do you know... Uh, yeah, it does. It does. How do you know if ego has come in through the back door? It sounds like what you're asking. How do you know when egos come in through the back door of your experience when something negative arises and then suddenly it's no longer so negative? How can you tell if ego isn't jumping in and shifting levers and so forth? Ah, oh, see, now it's positive, right? Um, you can usually tell when ego has come into any mix when there is resistance of any kind. Okay. Whenever you feel resistance of any kind, that's ego. All right? I would also say that what one of the cool uh, byproducts of meditation is that it allows us to much more uh, um, readily, with greater facility, we can start seeing negativity as it arises. We can watch it as it arises, and we can watch it fall away much more quickly as opposed to being... Um, uh, just just blanketed by negativity. 
we instead are able to watch negativity. And negativity in that moment, when we can begin to watch it and study it, all we're watching is ego going through a resistance pattern. With that, it points us home every single time it shows up, which is exactly why I sometimes rather glibly say, when you know the, the world is crashing down, we can bring it. Come on, bring it. Because a world crashing down... Okay, is still giving us the same opportunity for presence and awareness as opposed to something that is totally beautiful. And we will always watch our relationship to negativity shift the more conscious we get in relationship to it. You'll find, for instance, if you, I've said this before, if any of you ever go on an extensive retreat, a meditation retreat for several days, the cool thing about that is that you cannot help but let your practice take over. Your practice takes over because the mind does not want to sit still for days on end. By day four, it's usually quite scary. You know, wait, did I just say that? Or no, wait, no, that's in my head. You know, that, that type of stuff kind of starts firing off. It's like, what the hell is going on? You know, and you have to be very, very, very present. And it's one of the reasons why it's good to have people next to you so that you do have a little bit of a, you know, support there. But you will find that your discomfort, your pain, your negativity, all that always shifts when the body is is absolutely still the mind will follow yeah Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome are you impressed too are you impressed? <laughs> julia uh, many oh sure yeah right yes um kind of a follow-up to the ego in the back door question um i'm really working on mindfulness in my professional life and I was thinking of your comment how when you're, lis- you're in a meeting and you're, you're, you're listening or you're really fully present. Um, I remember you speaking once a couple of months ago about an activist woman. I don't know if she's here tonight or not. How she, as she's gotten into practice, isn't as angry any- anymore, but is still doing great things. Yeah. And so I think about being in a meeting where I am being mindful, but they talk about something that I disagree or... Yeah. I can't, if I say you that, have an opinion like, about it. Did my ego come in? <laughs> right. So if they say something that I think is wrong, when have I shift? When has my ego come in? I mean, because I want to be present. If they're doing something that I think is unethically wrong, you want to speak up. But if you do it with kindness, then is, is it not? Sure, that can be a manipulation, though, too. So you want to be careful. Remember, no one is smart enough to be a hundred percent wrong, <laughs> right? And so. Um, that's not my line. I think that's Ken Wilber's, if I'm not mistaken. So don't give me credit for that. But the, 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 no one is smart enough to be 100% wrong. No one is smart enough to be 100% true. Everyone is partial. Every story is partial. Every single thing that you see is partial, including your own sense of what is true and what is a lie. Okay? So with that in mind, let the games begin. Right? Really, I mean, because it becomes this dance. And dances are fun, except when you're in seventh grade and you have lots of zits. Not so fun, you know. Is that too much information for everybody in this room? Sorry, okay, sorry. Sorry about that. But you get the idea here? In other words, when we, when we are no longer looking at someone as that it's necessary, it's necessary for us to oppose them, we can then call into question... We can constructively engage, even though we may not find what they're doing is, is an appropriate response. 
that doesn't let us off the hook. We still want to give the most generous possible response, which includes them and us, their view and ours. It's intellectually irresponsible, in my view, to say, okay, fine, then we'll just be neutral about everything. No. Participate. Participate fully, knowing that you may fail, you know, but that you never have to go combatively into the situation. You never have to declare war. In fact, if you are declaring war, even if it's a little war, it's ego seeing something as half empty rather than it's already complete. Let's see if we can lean this way a little bit, if we can guide. And that's great leadership. Have you ever seen great leadership? It's always about tilting massive organizations or small ones into a direction for greater generosity. And so when we become an agent for that, typically what we're doing is we're becoming an agent for greatness, not only for ourselves and our own capacity as leaders, our participants, but for the organization that we've affiliated ourselves with. Thank you. Yes, young lady? Yes, Janie? Yeah. Like much more than I've ever seen before in my life. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's pervasive right now. Right. And um, so you're out the world going, okay. Yeah. You You put on a happy face. Like I always do. And um, so I'm wondering about that. And I'm also, uh, just a secondary question, just while we're at it, to you. Mm hmm. Christianity last week. Yep. So, how similar is prayer and meditation? So I'll go with the second question first, and then we'll go back to the fear thing or the craziness, the crazy world. Um, I and this this may sound really like simplistic, so forgive. But I have, uh, in my experience, have learned that prayer is, when done mindfully, is about me talking to God. Meditation is about listening to what she has to say. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, and prayer, uh, if, if, if we're talking to God, we're actually talking to the sacred within us too. Right? Mm-hmm. So when prayer is done that way, it becomes almost symphonic. It becomes an expression invariably of gratitude of joy anything less or anything other than that it becomes an egoic negotiation and everyone in this room has had an egoic negotiation with god most likely if you get me through this i swear to god i will never whatever you know what i'm saying most of us have had that experience please just get me through this and i promise i will never fill in the blank right that typically is a, a deeply egoic thing because we perceive God as some force that's outside of us, which by definition means that God's not infinite. If God is outside of us, that means we are somehow separate from God. Is there a greater egotistical flair than that moment? We pray to God, get over yourself. Right? In other words, God, God is this name we give to the effulgent flow of the infinite in all cases. And we either get in that flow or we oppose it. But it will always win. Right? So with that in mind, 
what we can tend to do is we can tend to look at ourselves as separate from things. And when we start seeing that we are actually much more connected, when we start to open, especially as a meditation practice begins to kind of take root, or a contemplative prayer practice for Christians begins to kind of take root, what begins to happen is we become hypersensitive to the world. And it sounds louder than it's ever sounded. And it hurts more than it's ever hurt. It's not until our practice, we continue with it fearlessly, we keep going, that we realize, yeah, it hurts more, but the gravity is less. We also can look at this from just a historical context. And I would rather live right now with all of its craziness. I would much rather live right now than in the Middle Ages. No doubt. Anywhere on the planet. You know? I would rather live right now than in 1954 America unless I was a white male. Right? We have this tendency, our ego will author these beautiful stories about how well it used to be. You know? If the good old days, there were never good old days. There is now. And our approach to it. And so, despite the fact that we have gone from 13 channels <laughs> to, to well over, I flip and have like 900 channels on my basic cable, you know? And most of it is noise. And what happens is we have so many variants, the, the, the noise varies so significantly from these very kind of uh, um, these opinions I'm talking about, these identifications that I'm talking about, that we can actually support whatever story it is we have going in our head as a way of kind of grabbing on, feeling safe. You know? When in fact, we're not safe. But we're also not really anymore in danger. The danger is, when we, we relate it back to practice, is what kind of relationship do we have with our own minds? Do we have the capacity, in other words, to be present in the midst of all the noise? Can we, can we actually, just instead of getting hooked by whatever it is that we're hearing on TV, or that, you know, what we're seeing, the imagery that we're seeing on, you know, on television, can we instead be aware of our bodily sensation and thoughts that surround that stimulus. That distance, that little space that we create, allows for our armor not to get dinged when we get shot by one of those arrows. There's more space. And guess what? We can always respond much more generously when we're kind of like, oh, wow, as opposed to no way or God damn it, right? So there's an aplomb. There's a peace that we've always wanted that is paradoxically always there that we begin to tap into that allows for us not to get whipped around by the winds of life. Instead, we begin to sail. You know, it lifts us. You. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Last one, Tess, yes. Sorry, I have to do this again. You do? You sure? <laughs> what if you are one of those people who's a nurturer, mm -hmm. like, a, like a teacher, and you actually um, find it easy to give mm -hmm. so that 
you end up giving too much all mm -hmm. the time, and it injures you. So how do you create that that ability so that you're not injured but you're able to give? Don't give unless you can fully receive. Stop your giving because it's not. If you're giving too much and you're hurting yourself, you're not giving anything. You're actually causing harm. Because you're not taking Exactly, exactly. So this, with the practice then, is to go equally in a balanced way in both directions as opposed to tipping one way, which actually creates an imbalance, not only for the giver, but the receiver and the gift itself. All three are diminished in that, in that move. And it's very difficult for nurturers because nurturers, that's the way, they, that's the way their egos operate. And so what we're talking about is actually calling into question that entire move as a way of kind of rebalancing and reconfiguring a healthier way of moving through the world and being able to touch more people more profoundly, more richly with every single moment that you're alive. So how do you distinguish between, for example, I'm a professor, mm -hmm. so at, at work I get to give as much as I want. Right. So how do you distinguish between that and your personal life, or how do you balance the difference between those two? One is being on stage and delivering content, and one is being in an intimate dance with others that are close to you. All right? Content delivery can be a dance on its own, but with intimates, it has to be balanced within that, that circuit. We have, we have to... It's give and take in much more subtle, complex, and rich ways than it is, for instance, I depend on you guys to be here to listen to me. It would be really silly if I showed up every Monday night and there was no one here. Be peaceful, you know, right? So we do have a give and take, but what I will do is just let it all hang out from where, where I am right now, but this is not the way I behave in my, in my closest relationships, otherwise people would shun me. You know? Put the chalk down. <laughs> Come out with your hand, you know what I mean? Right? So it becomes, it becomes a dance of, of sensitivity and subtlety to our own experience as well as theirs, whoever the they are. And in doing that, when we get really good at it, the us and them kind of starts to fall away. It's a, that's a, that's a great, it's a great, I could, I could go on and I won't because everybody's tired, but, uh, that's a, that's a really cool, it's a cool thing. How do you create, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. How do we create balance? Balance is peace, right? Good luck. Good luck. Good luck.